Ladies and gentlemen, a warm welcome to this evening's pre-performance event here at the Coliseum before this evening's opera. Um, I'm Christopher Cook and I'll be sort of guiding us through the next 45 minutes. Can I just do some house notices first? Would you make certain that your mobile phones and anything else that may be lurking in pockets, handbags, wallets, briefcases that might whistle, sing or dance is turned completely off? Not just put to quiet, but completely turned off. Can I remind you that you may not record what we're doing, but we're going to record it and it will be on the website uh, within a few days should you wish to listen either completely or selectively to what we discuss and also please no photographs. Um, should we need to leave, which is extremely unlikely, but should we need to leave, would you make your way to one of the doors with the strange man speeding towards a large void? There's one there and there's one over there and we shall be escorted quietly from the building by the uh, staff here at the Coliseum. And one last thing, a kind of apology in advance Sometimes we get noise up from the red curtains from the bar below um, when revellers arrive a little earlier and are determined to revel loudly. I apologise in advance. So far, fingers crossed this season, they have been quiet revellers, thoughtful revellers, rather than wild revellers, but you never know. Um, Philip Glass wrote Satyagraha in 1979 with a libretto by himself and Constance de Jong. And very loosely, it's based on Gandhi's early life in South Africa and his struggle there for Indian rights. Um, and it's the second part of what Glass has called his portrait trilogy of operas about men he believes changed the world. It also includes Einstein on the Beach and Arkan Arten, both of which, of course, have been staged here at the Coliseum by English National Opera. The style of the music for Satyagraha is minimalist and the opera is written for two sopranos, two mezzo-sopranos, two tenors, a baritone, two basses and a very large chorus who have an enormous amount to do. And you can see behind me on the screen images from this production which give you some sense, if you've not seen it before, of what you're going to see. Though, of course, a still image, not a moving image. The orchestra, it consists of strings and woodwinds only. There is no brass or percussion. Principal roles are for Gandhi, his secretary, Ms. Schlesen, a European Kallenbach, and for Parsi Rustamji, who both work with Gandhi. Satyagraha can be translated as insistence on truth, and it's had an enormous influence on the fight for political rights in the 20th century. Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela are just two leaders who were profoundly influenced by Gandhi's ideas. The opera traces these ideas and the use to which Gandhi himself put it in South Africa, and it's divided into three parts or three acts. The first part is named for Leo Tolstoy, the novelist, who, of course, in old age developed very radical ideas about how we ought to live together in a better world. Part two is presided over by the great Indian philosopher and poet Tagore, and part three is named for Martin Luther King. The action of the opera takes place from the 18, 1890s until the eve of the First World War. Uh, and the libretto, as we shall discuss, is in fact in Sanskrit and it's drawn from one of the Sanskrit holy books. The production that we're going to see tonight is the second revival by Julian Crouch and Felin McDermott of their original 2007 production, which was a collaboration between English National Opera and the Improbable Theatre Company. We'd hoped, as many of you will know, to be joined by Felin McDermott this evening. Alas, he has to be somewhere else for another show. Such is the busy life of an opera director. Nevertheless, we have a splendid lineup of guests, a quartet of them, to explore Philip Glass's Satyagraha. The 
Jenner, Philip Sheffield, who's the cover for the role of Gandhi, is with us tonight. And so is Nicholas Ansel Evans, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff and also the assistant conductor on this production. Our third guest is Laurie Steiner, who's one of the great hidden heroes of this theatre. He's English National Opera's fly supervisor. More about the flies in a moment, so to speak. Uh, and our first guest is Elaine Tyler-Hall, who's the English National Opera staff director and who's worked closely with Felin McDermott on this revival of Satyagraha. Would you please welcome Elaine Tyler-Hall. Elaine, would you, could you explain, first of all, I rather simplify the idea of what Satyagraha is. Yes, um, I think probably everybody's familiar with... Uh, the idea of passive resistance, um, non-cooperation, uh, uh, those sorts of ideas which Gandhi was well, very well known for. Um, but when he was in South Africa, he was frustrated in a way that the term passive resistance didn't really describe what he was trying to do. Passive sort of meant not doing anything. Um, and he was frustrated by that. So he actually set up a competition um, in his newspaper uh, trying to ask whether someone would come up with a word that actually described what he was trying to do, which was very actively trying to resist the injustices that were going on at the time. Um, and so his nephew uh, came up with an, an idea of a word wasn't quite what he wanted. Um, so he reconstructed it, and it was, comes from two Gujarati words, uh, sat for truth, and agraha, which means force. So the force of truth, really, is, is what it means. Part one has the kind of title, Tolstoy, part two, Tagore. How important were Tolstoy and Tagore in shaping Gandhi's ideas? Tolstoy was very important, and Tagore too, in a slightly different way. Um, Gandhi, I think, perhaps I'm unfair in saying this, but he wasn't necessarily an original thinker. Uh, he, his experiences in life, from a, a fairly conventional Indian upbringing, uh, took him to London uh, to, to study law, uh, back to India, then to South Africa. And um, he, he came across a lot of different influences at the time. Um, when he was in London, he became very influenced by uh, the vegetarian um, movement, which was happening at the time. Uh, and then, through the different people that he met, he, he read, was widely read in many different cultures of uh, literature and uh, philosophy. And he came across some of the work of Tolstoy, which was very important to him this idea of uh, spirituality. And as a very religious man himself, a Hindu, uh, he, his mind was not closed to other religions. He was very open and very interested in uh, the philosophy and the spirituality of, of all sorts of religions. Uh, Christianity, Hinduism, um, um, the Muslim religion as well. So, so he had a very uh, wide intake of influences. Um, and Throughout his life, he came across different people that, in, that inspired and influenced him enormously, Tolstoy being one, uh, this idea of um, giving up stuff. Uh, you know, you don't need things to live. And, and so throughout his life, he gradually started to uh, let go of personal possessions and personal needs and became a very... Uh, 
uh, a simple man, and I think that's what his, his intention was, to become a simple man. Uh, his relationship with Tagore was slightly different. He disagreed with Tagore on, on various um, uh, ideas of philosophy and the future of, um, of India itself. Uh, and uh, he was influenced, but not necessarily agreed with Tagore's ideas all the time. I wonder if there's a suggestion in the opera that in a way, personal enlightenment, um, discovering about yourself leading a better personal life, a spiritual life, goes hand in hand with political action. These two, which for many of us are separate discrete activities, are for Gandhi and others within his movement, identical. I think that's absolutely right. I think within, within an opera it's quite uh, difficult to, to demonstrate that idea, but within the person of Gandhi, that was very clearly uh, that as he moved through his life, he was fascinated by political action and change, but um, personal enlightenment too, and both of those things had to go together for him. It was, it was really crucial. There's, um, you'll see as we, as we, as you see at the opera tonight, that there are uh, some projections which are projected onto the set. And for me, the most important one, and I think which uh, illustrates what you're saying, is uh, the wise should act. It comes from the Bhagavad Gita, uh, which all of the Sanskrit texts come from. And uh, that particular you know, few words I think is so important uh, to the spirit of the piece and the, to the spirit of Gandhi and what, what he truly believed. One also suspects that for Philip Glass, it's the idea of, of moral courage. There's one extraordinary moment in the opera in which Gandhi returns from a visit to India. Um, he comes back to Durban, which is his home, um, and as he's making his way through the streets, he's beset upon by the local people, and he's rescued in an extraordinary gesture by Mrs. Alexander, who's the wife of the superintendent of police, who in this production is wonderful, a kind of like a huge galleon in full sail, who uses her umbrella, not to mention her large picture hat, to protect him. And this idea of moral courage uh, clearly is something that Glass finds in this story, I think. Yes, I mean, that is a fantastic story of Mrs. Alexander, you know, this figure of, 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 uh, of, of the, you know, the constitution of, 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 of the town at the time, suddenly standing up and, and looking after an Indian. Very shocking, I would imagine, at the time. Um, but yes, moral courage is what this whole piece is about. And actually, every single scene, I think, um, really looks at that idea in, in different sense. So, um, for example, the first scene, which is uh, an encounter between Gandhi and also two mythological figures of, of Krishna and um, uh, Arjuna. Uh, Krishna is uh, exhorting Arjuna to act. Uh, he, he is worried about actually uh, doing something because of the harm he might cause, he might kill someone, and Krishna says, no, if you're doing something for truth, then you have to act. And actually this moral courage is reflected in every single scene. So the second scene, which is called, is about Tolstoy Farm, um, one of the ashrams that, uh, that Gandhi set up in South Africa. Uh, he set it up to look after the families of the Satyagrahi who were in prison. There was no one to look after their families. And he set up this farm to look after these 
really very defenseless, defenseless people. Um, and that moral courage it took for him to do that in the face of much opposition uh, from, from the European settlers in South Africa at that time was extraordinary. And every scene actually looks at moral courage in some sense. What are the practical challenges that uh, Satyagraha presents, I suppose, to a production team? It's quite simply that the libretto, as we've said, is entirely in Sanskrit, uh, based upon the Bhagavad Gita. And how do you, as it were, help an audience who don't necessarily have Sanskrit um, through to understand what is happening? <laughs> um, this piece is, is extraordinary in many ways, and of course you know, how many operas are, have a libretto in Sanskrit, so, you know, perhaps there, there isn't an equivalent. Um, but there is no uh, linear narrative to the text. It is a meditation about ideas. And in some sense, this idea that we have a text which does have meaning, but we don't get hung up on the ideas of, or the, the actual word-to-word -word meaning, um, is very liberating in some sense. Um, I sadly was not working on this production. I wish I had been in 2007 when it was first done. So um, I'm a new, a new person on this production, but I've been very excited to work on it because with this libretto, I think, oh my goodness, what on earth are you going to do with it? Suddenly, the visual images and uh, the movement and the sound world which is created can really help the audience um, go on this journey of uh, having a meditation about what they see and what they hear. And maybe if you know a little bit about the story of Gandhi, great, you might hang those ideas onto that story. But it's not essential that you do. The visual images are so strong and so beautiful that actually you, the meditation can take you into all sorts of different places. And it's not, it's not important. You'll find at the end it doesn't feel important that you haven't been told a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. That it has a life and a sincerity and a truth of its own. Elaine, stay with us because we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the technical things um, at the end of our time today. But thank you very much indeed. Um, our second guest um, uh, indeed has an enormous role to play in what is, as you can see, uh, an immensely complicated on-stage production. Would you please welcome uh, Laurie Steiner. <laughs> Laurie, the, the flies are, as it were, your kingdom. What exactly is, if it's singular or if it's plural, are the flies? The, uh, the flies are, um, it's an area uh, above the playing space on stage uh, where scenery is uh, flown, uh, hence flying or flies. Um, we fly pretty much anything that you'd like to fly, including cars, um, animals, people, uh, but mostly lights, scenery, cloths, uh, gauzes, pretty much anything, really. What makes the flies here at, at Eno, at the Colosseum, rather, special? I think the team that we've got working here, yeah, pretty much the, uh, the people are all committed to working. I mean, they, they love what they do, um, and they're all pretty special. They've all got their own um, sort of disciplines. Everybody's good at some things, more, more so than other things. But How uh, many of them are there in your team? Uh, I have got seven permanent, um, like, charge hand um, uh, 
flymen. Um, and then there are a pool of about 20 to 30 other people that we use on occasion. But we've got our favourites, people that are good at certain things. Um, yeah, there's, there's a few, few of us. And is everything flown, so to speak, by hand? I mean, I know, having just put my nose around the corner of the stage, all those ropes that are tied to the side. Is, is that <laughs> actually where you're all working? Yes, absolutely. Um, we've got uh, about uh, 55 line sets, which are part of a counterweight system, um, which is like a balancing, a, a scales sort of system. You put a bit of scenery on one side, and you put a counterweight on the other side, and you have to pull a line to make the pieces... Oh, to make the piece go uh, one way or the other, um, in or out. Um, and we do use uh, motors, we do use automation, uh, which is uh, the programming of motors so that you can go to different speeds and stop at different deads. Um, that's sort of a more modern way of flying and what people generally want to do nowadays. But um, on the whole, we're a we're a, a counterweight house, so most that's of the skill, presumably. It is, yeah. Um, different directors and different um, uh, stage managers want things at different speeds, um, and it's knowing the difference between slow, very slow, medium slow, a bit slower. You know, uh, I mean, it, the, the the different things that are, we're asked, and then and then when they have different types of fast um, you sort of come into your own and it's not necessarily the being able to move something or to make it go fast it's being able to stop it at the other end so that it doesn't bump on the floor or it doesn't crash into the the the, the roof so it's a skill it is a skill and, and how do you communicate to each other on stage because obviously you can't shout at each other because there's a show going on uh, on the whole it's uh, done with headsets uh, motorola set um so that you can talk directly to people um it used to be years ago that we used to whistle. Um, I don't know if people know about that. But, um, Tell us about that. Um, it's, it, it, what happened was, years ago, uh, there wasn't many people to work on, on in theatres. And so what they used to do is use local sort of naval crews and things like that. And because the Navy, or in the Navy, they used to whistle to sort of operate various bits of equipment, it sort of transposed to the theatre. And so calling a piece of uh, scenery in was done with a certain kind of whistle. Um, we don't do that anymore. Um, but it is still bad luck to whistle on stage because you never know you might get hit on the head by a piece of scenery. So. <laughs> yes, I'd always wonder. It is, it is actually no one... Is, you, you just don't whistle on stage. No, no. It's, it's just a general rule, really. Um, more superstition than, 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 than anything else. What, what's the biggest challenge? What's the, the, the most difficult thing you've had to fly here at the Coliseum? Oh. There's been some very, very heavy items, certainly in this last season. Um, for Dalio, at the beginning of the season, um, there was uh, one truck we had to fly. A, a stage truck is a piece of scenery that's built uh, to be able to wheel around on stage to get it from A to B, basically. But this this one piece in particular weighed seven seven point two tons, and we had to fly it. 12 metres into the air so that we could get another 7.2 tonne truck underneath it. So, um, yeah, that, that's, it's challenging to sort of know where in the, in the roof to be able to fly something. So, yeah, that, that's probably the biggest do, do, challenge. Do creative teams understand, A, what's possible with the flies, <laughs> and B, what's impossible? Um, yes, uh, but they still try to push you that little bit further. Um, 
fortunately they do know that there are limitations to the building so you know we can't lift anything too heavy uh, the stage can only take a certain amount of weight so you can't put too much on there um, for Fidelio the, the, the uh, show with the heavy trucks um, we had to reinforce two-thirds of the stage just so we could wheel things around um, same goes for the flies if there's anything that's too heavy we have to um, put extra motors in the grid to be able that's the the area above the stage um to be able to lift things up um the creative teams do know but like i say they um they do try and push it a little bit uh, and presumably you need to be there at the beginning of the process so you're there when the first decisions are made about about the model um, for the set and so on well i come in at the 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 model end um after the design's been approved and it's gone forward for drawing up I then get sort of brought in to discuss where, whereabouts the hanging points are going to be on the various pieces of scenery, um, whether or not it's practical to fly or should it stay on the floor and, and sort of roll around on stage. Um, I would say that nine times out of ten, I can fly it. <laughs> Laurie, what are the particular things that you've got to be concerned about and do for Satyagraha? For Satyagraha, it's... It's actually not that complicated a show to fly. Um, there are two two parts in the show where you haven't got very much weight on some lines. You'll see this when you go and see the show. Um, and there are chains hanging off the wires. Um, and they all fly in very, very slowly. And then people hang things on to these things. And the weight changes. So where you've got weight into the in the counterweight system to allow for it not having anything on it and then they add something to it we've got to have someone very strong on the other end to be able to pull that thing out you'll, you'll know what it is when you see it <laughs> you've got us <laughs> appetite for it Laurie Steiner thank you very much thank indeed. you thank you Ladies and gentlemen, time, I think, to hear a little bit about the music that we're going to hear tonight. Could I ask you to welcome the tenor Philip Sheffield, who's the cover for the role of Gandhi tonight, and Nicholas Anstel Evans, member of the Eno Music staff, but also the assistant conductor on this production. Would you please welcome our two musical guests? I'm going to bully Philip before he's allowed to sing. Um, Philip... How on earth do you learn a role in a language that you probably don't, I'm rather assuming, speak? Uh, one simple word, graft. It's, it's as simple as that. I was um, asked to do this about six or seven weeks ago. And uh, I was sitting in a, in a flat in Strasbourg doing another opera and uh, I received the PDF. And I said, but how on earth do I learn this? Can you send me a translation? And the colleague came back and said, we don't have a translation. So, you, so the first thing you usually do as a singer is you, the first thing you look at is the text and how to learn the text. And to learn the text, especially in a difficult language, maybe something like Czech that you've done before, you'll have a word-for-word -word translation. This, there was no translation. So literally, it was a question of learning it syllable, syllable by syllable, repeating words, phrases, and, and building them up into whole uh, uh, whole sections. Do you learn quickly? Well, normally I do, but I, I have to, you know, I've, I've learned some really big roles and performed them, but this is um, without doubt the hardest thing I've ever had to memorize. Uh, you, will, you will see tonight when you see Alan doing the role. It's uh, quite a big role. Do, do you have to, with this piece, jettison uh, any traditional ideas about what your opera is? Elaine was faintly hinting that, but do you, as a singer, have to forget about many of the things that you've been taught? There, there is one very big difference, I think, in, in this, and, and I think that you have to completely get rid of ego. It's an extraordinary... Uh, singing is a very egotistical 
um, art form in, in many ways. There's a lot of performance. And the whole way we rehearsed by Elaine and by Phelim, uh, I did quite a lot of the rehearsals because Alan Oak wasn't here. Um, a, a lot of the way you rehearse is, is just becoming one with everyone else and becoming part of the whole experience of, of the piece. And so the, the thing we had to learn as a singer was to was to stop that any sort of sense of, 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 of a gesture being the wrong type of gesture. The, all, there are a lot of gestures in this show. You'll see lots of things very slowly developing, but they're all very integral to the piece and internalized. Um, that, that's and very organic. Because that, that, in a sense, presumably mirrors the experience you have as the artist, precisely what the piece itself is about. Exactly. It's a rare matching, perhaps. Yeah, it, it's, it's a very, very unusual piece. I had no idea what to expect sort of seven or eight weeks ago, and I've been completely uh, amazed by the experience of working on this piece. And are there particular vocal challenges, quite apart from the language one? There are stamina problems, because what Glass does is he does a huge amount of repetition, as I'm sure you all know. And there, there are scenes where you, you just really don't get a chance to breathe. So you, um, for example, in the third act, you'll find that Adam will be sitting on the floor singing a long, a long section, which is very, very quiet and very beautiful. But you actually listen, he's got to sort of choose where to breathe and to carry on. It's a little bit like an oboist who's having to sort of continually uh, take a new breath to keep going. Usually in singing, there's a, there's a bar off where you can really replenish your lungs, you can let the larynx drop. In this one, you don't have a chance to do that. And Alan Oak was, of course, has been involved with this production since hmm. the very beginning. Was he there on hand to offer wisdom as you started? No, working? not specifically. I mean, I, I, I know him and I emailed him and I said, you know, I mean, how do you learn this? And basically he said what I just said at the beginning, graft. <laughs> so that was as much help as I got from Alan. <laughs> and what are you and Nicholas going to perform for us now? Well, at the end of the opera, uh, you'll see this very, very beautiful scene where um, uh, Gandhi is, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say what happens at the end, but he's, 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 there's a vision with, with Martin Luther King behind. It's very beautiful to see. And this is actually one bit where he can breathe, but he repeats the same phrase 30, ti 30 times, I think. Um, in, normally in the opera, there are, in between each one, uh, a particular section of music is repeated four times. We're just going to repeat it two times. Otherwise, we'll be here until the beginning of the opera tonight. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed.
Philip Sheffield and Nicholas Anson Adams. Thank you, Evan. Thank you very much indeed. Nicholas, um, what was your first reactions when you opened the score? What did you think? Um, maybe I can just answer that by saying how much I've come to admire it since I opened the score. <laughs> um, there is nothing quite like it, and um, I think it has taken Phelim's amazing production to open my eyes to what this music is about, really. And uh, Philip was saying you have to let go of your ego. I think you have to let go of your ego as a repetiteur, as a conductor. Um, yes, you have to, to lose yourself in it and, and treat it in a meditative way, even though there's, there's also quite a lot of ex quite pretty exciting music in it as well. Which, um, but but it, it has a timelessness which, which requires a certain frame of mind. And, and it's almost completely different, perhaps, from anything else you've ever conducted or worked on. Yes, I mean, minimalism is a, is a style of its own, and and now there are more minimal minimalist operas. And of course, there was a new Philip Glass opera here only a few months ago, but very, very different, and in many ways more traditional. I think this this is this is more groundbreaking, and dare I say it, more interesting. Is the drama in the score rather than perhaps in the, in the, in the action? In other words, if we keep our ears um, really about us and listen, is that where we find what is happening? Do you no. Think? I think um, you need to keep your eyes open as well as your ears and, and let what you see uh, guide you as well into, as to what you hear. It's not... A conventional opera in the sense that there are not dramatic events so there are not sm small-scale dramatic events and they're certainly not characterized in the music it, it, it positively rejects that that's exactly what it doesn't do so if you go in with that expectation I think you will be disappointed you, you that's the frame of mind I'm talking about it it's it's more it start the way it starts it just starts like a prayer and it goes on and on and it just changes very slightly that he learned that from Indian music. Um, so, so it's not about dramatic events in the music. It's about the music leading you in, into the appreciation. And, and is much of its effect the, the decision by Glass not to deploy the full resources of an orchestra but to uh, eliminate percussion for example yeah there's, there's, no, there's no, 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 no horns there are no, 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 no brass no percussion um, it's very hard work for the orchestra I mean it's not orchestral music um, at, at, at all at all at all it really is so hard for them down there have a little bit of pity um, <laughs> but they're great they're so great what they do and it just sounds marvellous um, no minimalism is about renunciation isn't it and, and um, that's why in this amazing way chimes in with this, this idea of Satyagraha that, 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 that you give up in order to achieve something else, greater is it helpful at all to use the word oratorio? I mean, one thinks of, of, of an oratorio tradition, but of this kind of music um, somehow relating in some way. It's, it, has, it's an or, it, has or, it has an element of the sacred about it. Um, and um, there are not many operas which directly treat that. Um, of course, I'm th I think of Parsifal, but, but, but um, I think the, the thing about oratorio is you think of it as being a concert work, and this would not work in a concert hall. It needs, it needs the stage, and it needs 
a genius director, let's face it, to, to find the qualities and fail him just is that. Nicholas, thank you very much indeed. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Elaine, um, the range of theatre skills, as Nicholas has suggested, that are deployed on the stage of Miss Production are enormous. Give us an idea of the kind of things that are there. Well, we have our fantastic singers, so we have our eight principal singers. Uh, we have the chorus, amazing, amazing, amazing chorus. But we also have um, our group of, what do we call them? Very difficult to know. We call them our skills ensemble because they have so many skills. It's amazing. We have 12 people um, who are trained in all sorts of different things. We have dancers, actors, circus people, um, production people, a whole range of people um, who have, uh, back in 2007, made a lot of what you see on the stage. They made the puppets that you see, which are extraordinary. Um, you might have seen pictures in some of our publicity already, but they made them themselves, and this group of people who are fantastic performers have such a range of abilities that uh, I'm, I, my hat goes off to them because I just think they're great. Really. How, how do you begin to assemble this kind of skills ensemble? Uh, Phelim, who works, uh, whose company Improbable works in many, many different ways and uh, over the years you meet different people, different actors, different performers who have the different skills. So it's one of those things that you accrue. People have the same ideas, they like working in the same way as you. And we are very, very lucky with this group of people who have at some point done this production before, either here, one of the times we've done it here, or in New York as well. So um, they have amazing loyalty and love of this piece because they created it. If, if, if singing um, uh, and losing one's ego, and if the music also banishing ego is essential, movement, we've not talked about, this too is essentially part of a gestural language for the piece. Yes, it's been, as I said, I'm the, I'm the new kid on the block on this one, and uh, I've really enjoyed working with Phelan because uh, all of the basis of his work comes from a group of people, an ensemble of people, so our actors, singers, chorus, working together um, and being aware of the people around them, how they are, what they're doing, what they're thinking, the way that they're moving, um, and working a physicality that is uniform across everyone that's on the stage, that they all buy into a single idea. So we haven't got a group of dancers and we haven't got a group of singers, but it is a group of performers who are performing this piece and are unified in their um, ideas and intentions. And that's what Phelim is so brilliant at doing, of creating a group of people who work together. Um, and uh, you know, the essence of this piece is about that and, and that's what he's done so very, very well. And an enormous role for the chorus. I mean, the chorus, in a sense, uh, are never almost off stage, are they? No, very, very busy for the chorus. And uh, it's, it's great to see the, the, the members of the chorus who, who were very worried, I think, about it when they first did it because they thought, what the hell is this going to be? Um, but they absolutely love it because it is not just getting onto a stage and doing something that someone has asked them to do. They uh, really are 
involved in the, in the spirituality of the piece, and they, they really care about what it means um, to them, to the company, um, and you know, just what performing is about. And I think that's what you'll find when you hear and see the chorus on stage, that, that they truly believe that this is what it should all be about. This is a revival. It's its third appearance on the stage. Yeah. Has this been a chance, do you think, for Fellin McDermott and indeed Julian Crouch to rethink the decisions they've taken earlier? I mean, are we, if you've been before, are you going to see things you've not seen before? I think the structure of it hasn't changed an awful lot. I saw it the first and second time round, so you know I've seen it a couple of times before I worked on it this time. Um, so I don't think the structure of it has changed very much because the, the initial ideas that he had were incredibly strong. We have some performers who were with us before. We do have some new performers this time. And what I think is incredibly freeing for a performer, and, and Philip can maybe back me up on this, um, is that he doesn't want you to do somebody else's performance. He wants you to be do your own performance. And so in some sense, everybody you see on the stage is recreating every performance, every time they've rehearsed it, every time they step onto the stage. It's something new because their ideas in their head are new um, and uh, they are recreating as they do it. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an odd thing with revivals of pieces is that revival, you think, oh, well, there's something dead that we're bringing back to life. It's not that at all. It's very much living already, um, but it, every time it's done, something will be new, something will be exciting about it that we haven't seen before. Elaine, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask questions of any of our four guests, please do put your hands up. There are roving my friends. There's a que two questions in the back. We'll take the one at the end of the row first and then the gentleman in the woolly hat. My question is for Nicholas. Um, are there any Indian instruments in the, in the pit? There are no Indian instruments in this score. Um, Philip Glass had worked a lot with Indian music before he wrote this score and some of the techniques he learnt from Indian music he has used in, in developing these long, long drawn out structures. But it was very specifically written as, as a commission for um, a European opera orchestra, albeit uh, um, one without brass and percussion. A question, the next gentleman along. Yeah. We wait for the microphone. What was the reason for the decision not to translate it into English? I, I can't answer that one. Nicholas, do you know? Well, I, I'm a, I could just say that, that, that I mean, it, that, uh, I mentioned in, in my little uh, bit that, that we weren't really supposed to know what it was about. So the point is that it's not supposed to, you're not supposed to know what is going on word by word, that's not the way that the piece works. So the piece is supposed to create an, uh, create an atmosphere and the words create that atmosphere. And funny enough, that bit that I sang there, you notice that the orchestra changes its intensity. And so you naturally as a singer then start to increase your intensity, even though you personally don't know the words you're singing but you become inspired by what's around you on the stage. And for instance, in that last scene, you'll see Martin Luther King there, and you'll find that Alan will sort of be inspired by what he's seeing, what he's feeling, and will sing phrases accordingly. He doesn't know what they mean, which is 
Can I add something to that? I, I don't know the answer to that question either, but my own experience of the piece, which may be yours if you've seen it before and others, is that actually you see it in a, in a quite different way than virtually anything else I've ever seen in an opera, because you are required to take up a different relation to it. You have to work quite hard, and you have to work out for yourself, as well as surrendering yourself to it, if I can use that phrase. And that, I think, is what makes the whole experience so extraordinary and so exciting. It's just unlike any other comparable experience. To have translated it, my eyes would have been looking along the top all the time, and I think I'd have missed that sense of, of, the, of unpicking and undoing the puzzle and surrendering to the work on its own terms, I think. That's not an answer, but, but it was my own experience. Do we have another question from anybody? Yes, the, the microphone's on its way. Um, why do you think Philip Glass uh, chose this period in Gandhi's life rather than, you know, the later, better known during the Ind Indian independence movement? I was reading around the subject when I first knew I was going to work on this piece, and um, I did not know anything about his time in South Africa. I certainly didn't know he'd been there for nearly 20 years. I was really surprised by that. I thought, you know, maybe he'd been there five years. 20 years he was there. And all uh, his sort of really big ideas he created when he was in South Africa. He put a lot of them into practice when he'd returned to India, but he, it, all the germs of the ideas were certainly there in South Africa. And it's a fascinating, fascinating time in, in Gandhi's life, actually. We have time for one more question. Yes, we'll take two. One at the very back, then we've got one at the front. Without being reverent, don't you think, you know, not knowing what the meaning, were, the meaning of the words is almost a, a religious experience. It's almost like the Latin Mass used to be. A lot of people who hmm. went to Latin Mass didn't associate the actual word to the English. And you could almost say opera itself, before you started having the words put up on screen, a lot of people sat and listened to an opera and didn't actually know word for word what was being sung and that in itself is an experience that's recreated here. Nicholas, would you like to add anything to that? I mean, oh, I think we've, we've, we've already said, I mean, uh, all I can say is that if, you, if, this, if, if it were translated, it would lose its effect completely. Um, that it's interesting how it makes you realize that singing is not just about communicating text it's a, it, ultimately about something deeper. The last question in the front row. The microphone is coming. Thank you. It's really about interpretation, if that, if that isn't the wrong word to use in connection with this piece. And it's really a question for Philip. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned how when uh, the piece, the, the intensity changed, you reacted to that. Mm. Does that mean that for most of the piece, you're not really putting any thoughts yourself forward? You're getting it all from the score, uh, from, and, from and the orchestra. From, really. from that, partly from the score and partly from the, the quality of movement that, 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 that we're encouraged to, um, to use by Phelim and by the, uh, by the improbable people around us. So you feel very uh, taken by the moment. So there, 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 I feel you're very inspired by the moment inside this piece. So, but yes, but the, there is a response to the orchestra. And then I also think that the conductor, if you suddenly feel an image that you want to sing a phrase louder and with more, and with more passion, Stuart, the conductor, will then reflect that in the way he conducts the orchestra. So it's actually quite an organic and very live experience. So do you, do you go onto the stage then, more or less, 
with a blank canvas. More than in other pieces, yes, I would say so. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, can I just draw your attention to a special other event that, uh, at rather short notice, is going to take place in this very room um, at, on the 4th of December, that's next Wednesday at 5 o'clock. The Skills Ensemble, who've been part of Improbable Theatre's production here, are going to talk about the work, about their own particular skills, and about non-violent resistance. So there's a real opportunity to uh, extend your understanding of what they've done on stage and the kind of ideas that underpin the piece. And that's the 4th of December, next Wednesday, here at 5 o'clock. In the meantime, can I say thank you to all of you for being, as always, a splendidly attentive, thoughtful audience. But our special thanks to our four guests, Elaine, Tyler Hall, Philip Sheffield, Nicholas Ansel Athens, and Laurie Steiner. Thank you all very much indeed. <laughs>